Let's take our Bibles, turn to 2 Kings chapter 11. 2 Kings chapter 11. We'll begin with verse 10 today. And while you're turning, I know it's cold in here, but Brother Fulton adjusted the, the heaters, so please don't touch them. They're on their way to uh, bringing you to a comfortable temperature shortly. Second Kings chapter 11. Last week we spent a good deal of time learning about the importance of every person's job when it came to guarding young King Joash, the seven-year-old boy king, when it came to guarding his house, even though he wasn't in it, it belonged to him. Athaliah had usurped the authority over Israel, and she was a wicked woman. If she had been successful, she would have killed Joash as well. But the Lord hid him. They also guarded the house of the Lord. So this was quite an operation, and we use the incident command system as an example. I explained it very briefly to you. And Jehoiada the priest was the incident commander. We focused on the division of duties for each of the personnel under his command. And now we're going to look at the necessity for properly equipping those men and learn some lessons about that. They have their assignments. Now let's take a look at the necessity for properly equipping them. Look at verse 10 with me, if you will. 2 Kings chapter 11, verse 10. And to the captains over hundreds did the priest give King David's spears and shields that were in the temple of the Lord. Now that's a strange place to keep spears and shields, isn't it? Uh, we don't have a, a storage place here where we keep spears and shields. Uh, some of us come in and we have extra protection on us just in case something happens, somebody decides to... Uh, to do something harmful to us, but we don't keep those sorts of things. This is not an armory, a physical armory. It's a church. So what is it that would move David to put shields and spears in the temple? Well, that's nothing short of God's providence, God's foreknowledge, foreseeing these events right here that would come to pass and moving upon David's heart to put the shields and the spears there. In fact, there was a place back in in First uh, Samuel, I believe it was. It was when David went to a place called Nob, N-O-B. And he was on the run from Saul. And he was by himself. And when Ahimelech, the priest there at Nob, said, Hey, why are you by yourself? It scared him. And so they had a conversation, and David said, I'm hungry, and I need a weapon. And so the priest gave him five loaves of bread for David, and then, he, of course, he had some men with him. But uh, the next thing he wanted was a weapon. He said, do you have any swords here? Well, David had taken Goliath's sword after he beheaded Goliath, and he wrapped it, and it was behind the ephod there in that temple where uh, Ahimelech was and the priest of Nob. So there was another time when David hit a spear in a place of worship, 
and not knowing that he would need it in the future, but God did. And so that's similar to what we have right here. And it was during David's reign, probably hundreds of years we could say, before this time that he laid those spears and swords up in that temple. Now, how would a soldier be expected to protect a king going in and coming out if he had no weapons with which to defend? That'd be unreasonable, wouldn't it? In my line of work, I'm issued a lot of equipment, a patrol vehicle that goes really fast, and it's built to withstand the rigors of pursuit driving, which sometimes we have to engage in. I have handcuffs that allow me to secure a person after they're arrested to reduce the chances of their escape or of them accessing a weapon or trying to harm someone. It's not that they can't do it, but it reduces their opportunity. On my duty belt, I carry various weapons, such as a taser and an expandable baton and even a firearm in case I have to use force or deadly force to protect myself or someone else in the community. Now, I want you to imagine if I had none of those pieces of equipment. I just went to work in a pair of blue jeans and a T-shirt and said, all right, let's go out and enforce the law. What if my sheriff said, I want you to go out on the highway and I want you to enforce traffic laws, but he didn't give me a vehicle or a radar or any of that equipment? Well, I'd look silly trying to do that job. It'd be impossible, wouldn't it? unreasonable for him to expect me to do that but along with the equipment comes the need for training so we have personnel we have equipment and then we have training just like it's broken down for us here in in the bible and we don't read so much about the actual training of these soldiers we're going to presume they were already trained or they wouldn't be soldiers and the, they made it through their boot camp didn't they brother doug or they wouldn't have made it to the place where they were. But if I have the nicest radar in all of law enforcement, what good is it to me if I don't know how to use it? What if I've never been trained in its use? That would be a nightmare for the public, it's assuming I could even turn it on in the first place. And these soldiers who were being charged with protecting the king and the king's house and the Lord's house needed not only to have the proper equipment issued to them, but they needed to be trained to use it. And they already had that training. And now that equipment was supplied to them because of what King David did many years before. And the spiritual truth that we glean from this is wonderful. First of all, for pastors to protect the members of the church, the members of the Lord's church. We need a particular weapon, don't we? And we're not talking about guns or knives here. We have all of that for the physical, the carnal needs, but something greater than that. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not the knives and the guns and all of that, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. 
So carnal weapons would be spears and shields and swords and rifles and B-1 bombers and so forth. And although our weapons are not carnal, they're still mighty. In fact, they're mightier than the carnal weapons are. And in fact, carnal weapons are not mighty when it comes to the protection that a Christian needs. Imagine if I wanted to protect a church member from the destructive images of pornography. I wouldn't use a shotgun to destroy his computer. I'd use a weapon that's mightier than the shotgun. And that's God's word. Because if I teach that person God's word and show them what God's word says about all that filthiness and say, now, you know what the truth is. It doesn't matter whether he's in front of a computer or not. His heart's been changed if he accepts that truth. That's the weapon of best choice to protect that person against pornography. And in fact, that weapon works every time it's used. The Bible, correctly taught, correctly understood, and then applied by faith, works every time. If somebody says, well, I've been reading the Bible for years and I still have the same problems I did before. Well, is it being correctly taught to you? Do you understand what you're reading? As Philip asked the Ethiopian eunuch when he jumped up in the chariot with him, he said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And what did the eunuch say? Yes, sir, I've got a college education from the finest university in all of Egypt. I grow up in the king's palace. I serve the queen. He said, how can I except some man should guide me? So once Philip jumped up in the chariot and began there in Isaiah where the eunuch was reading from and expounded to him, explained to him Jesus, then the eunuch became a Christian. He now understood what he was reading, and he believed it. Now, he could have just said, well, I understand. It makes perfect sense to me that there's no other way to be saved and that this is what the prophets have been talking about all of this time. <laughs> but I'm not going to go for that. Well, now he's read it. It's been explained to him, but he refused to receive it. So it can't work. But when it's properly taught, properly understood, and then acted on by faith. It works every single time. It's fail-safe. Even the best firearm in the world, if you shoot enough rounds through it at some point, you're going to get a bad round of ammunition, and it's going to jam or misfire or something. The Bible never misfires. It never jams up, and it always shoots straight, doesn't it? But can a man be a pastor or a teacher just because he has a Bible? I mean, he has the equipment. He's willing. He can't do that any more than a soldier who owns a firearm can be a soldier. The man has to be trained in order for it to be useful. In the academy, we spent a considerable amount of time learning about firearms learning about acquiring a sight picture and all of this terminology that may have been different for you if you received military training. Mine was with the state police. 
And the aim, if I may use the word, was that we would have a good aim, that we would hit what we were aiming at. That was the whole purpose of it, and not hit what we weren't aiming at. That was the training. And had we not had that training, that would have been a nightmare. But the man has to be trained in order to be useful. And many men have entered the pulpit with the title of pastor or bishop, teacher, whatever their title was. And because they entered the pulpit with a Bible, but with no training, then they did more harm and they still do more harm to their congregation than they do good. And I believe many of them want to help others, that they have a they have the right spirit about it as far as wanting to be a blessing and wanting to do what God's will is. They just don't know how. And for many of them, I feel like it's because they've, they're not called or gifted to be a pastor in the first place. They've never been trained. For some of them, they've never been saved. Now, there's, that's not a shocker there is. If a man has never been saved and he gets up in the pulpit, why would he preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why would he try to understand all of the deep things of the Bible so that he can communicate them to others? A man who's unsaved would say, that's too hard. They'll never understand that because I don't understand it. So we'll just talk about something else. In his first letter to Timothy, in chapter 1 and verse 6, 1 Timothy 1, 6, the Apostle Paul wrote about the qualifications of a bishop, and we studied this not too long ago. And one of the things he said about a bishop is that he not be a novice. He said, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. In the Greek language, the word that is translated as novice is neophotos, or we get our English word neophyte. Now, maybe you've heard that, and you say, eh, I'm not sure what a neophyte is. Well, N-E-O means new, doesn't it? And then P-H-Y-T-U-S here in the Greek, that's the plant. So what it is is a new plant. That's what a neophyte is, is a new plant. And when it's applied to a Christian, that means it's a newly planted Christian, a newly planted pastor. We use the term baby Christian. And listen, if you're a baby Christian, that's not an insult. It's more, it's worse to be somebody who is a very experienced, religious, professing church member who's unsaved, who may know all sorts of things about the Bible, than it is for somebody to be a baby Christian who has put their trust in Jesus and is just ready to learn the rest of it now. I'd rather be that baby Christian than that religious professor who's lost, lost, lost. But that's what the word novice is. It's a neophyte, a newly planted Christian. So what Paul is saying there is you don't take a man who says, I want to be a pastor or I want to be a preacher and I have a Bible and put him in the pulpit and say, all right, get after it. He's not been trained any more than you take a soldier or you take a man who says, I want to guard the king, 
And I have a shotgun at the house and put him in the position to guard the king. He's not been trained. He doesn't know what to do. A newly planted Christian, now we're talking about pastors here, a newly planted Christian is not ready to bear the kind of fruit that a pastor bears. It's not that pastors are anything special. Pastor, associate pastor, teacher, bishop, whatever you want to call us or them. It's not that we're some cut above because we're not. We're sinners saved by the grace of God. And we know because our Bible tells us that God has gifted people with different things in the church. And every single one of those gifts is important. The gift of mercy is no less important or no more important than the gift of teaching. But not everybody can teach. Everybody can be merciful, can't they? Can't we? A newly planted Christian doesn't have enough understanding of the scriptures and cannot, therefore, be expected to teach them correctly. It's not out of maliciousness that they don't teach correctly. It's that they don't know how yet. And Paul warns that putting somebody like that as a pastor or going with our, our uh, text here, putting them in a position to guard precious souls, which the king was, which Christians are. Putting somebody in that position is a guarantee that they're going to be lifted up with pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. There was a time when I was a neophyte. I'd been a Christian for a long time. But I wasn't mature in my walk. A lot of wasted years. Some of you may have that testimony. I don't know, but I did. And I was asked by the pastor of the church I attended at that time to teach a small Sunday school class, very small, just three or four what we called young adults in there. I know I'm a young adult now, but these were the college and career type. They're either going to college or they've started a career or they're trying to start a career. And I was excited. I had a Bible. And I thought, well, I know how to do this. I'll just copy the way these other pastors teach and preach. And I'll pick a topic and write down a bunch of scriptures and put them in an outline. And that ought to do it. Now listen, I loved the people, and I loved God, I loved the Bible, and I wanted to teach. But I was so foolish. I was a novice. I wasn't the pastor of the church, but I was in a position of leadership. I was a novice, and before long, I thought I knew more than I really did. I was lifted up with pride. I made mistakes in my doctrine. So when I'd make a mistake in my doctrine or I'd come to a place that stumped me in the Bible, I'd go get a book or an article by a pastor and read it. Somebody who was an expert on the matter. And I thought, well, that'll get me out of the weeds right there. And it was stressful. Because I wanted to be correct in what I taught. And after all, those books and those articles were well written. 
the points were alliterated. They all started with the same consonant or sound. And they were often in outline form, so they're very organized. And these men love Jesus. How could I go wrong by reading after them? It wasn't that I didn't study. I didn't know how to study. I didn't know how to study right. I had a lot of scripture memorized, but I still didn't know how to study right. And one day, I was talking to a man who was a Christian, and I gave my opinion about some theological subject we were talking about. And the man with whom I was speaking asked me very humbly, he said, which scripture are you getting that information from? And I was stumped. But that's exactly what I needed. I needed for somebody to come down to earth and say, Andy, can you show me in the Bible where that is that you just said? And I was reminded by that man in his humble question, but very pointed question, that I needed to study to show myself approved unto God, not men. I didn't have to preach like other preachers. Brother Doug and I have had that conversation before he has the desire to, to teach and gets that opportunity over here, and uh, I'm glad God's blessed him with that. But I remember talking to Brother Doug and saying, don't be a Brother Andy or a Brother Richard, be Doug. You do Doug. And so I didn't have to be like those other preachers. I could simply take what the Bible says and explain it to others. Now, let me tell you, y'all have probably never been teachers before in that regard, in, in regard of teaching the Bible, but if you've ever taught topically, and then you go to teaching verse-by-verse verse expositionally, what you find is you just thought you were studying when you taught topically. You really don't have to study very hard to teach on a topic. You don't. Not, not if you do it the way that most, I'll just keep it in-house, independent fundamental Baptist preachers do it. I've even heard them, several of them say, I've, that's my sugar stick sermon. Your sugar stick. That means they preach it over and over again until they have it memorized. And when they go to a, a meeting somewhere, a, a missions conference, they get up there, they don't even have to open their Bibles. And everybody says, wow. Look at that. He never even used notes. I'm going to tell you, I confess. This right here. These are the notes just on First and Second Kings. I preach from notes. I teach from notes because I can't remember everything that I studied. So if that's ever a problem with somebody because they teach from notes, then that's some shallow thinking, isn't it? I don't want to be lifted up with pride and pretend that I don't use notes from which to teach. In fact, some of the things I say are written word for word, and that's how I say them. But to study, to teach verse by verse, takes a lot more time, a lot more time. But let me tell you, it's worth every second of it. Because when you come away from studying God's Word as it's written, verse by verse, forgetting what other men's opinions are about it, 
simply going to the original languages, trying to determine the meanings, give the sense of what the scripture says, like Nehemiah taught, then what you say at that point, people can either receive it or not, but you're giving them God's word. You're giving them food. My poor Sunday school students then, you know, God had given me the gift of teaching, but what I had forgotten was that I was first a student. And that word comes from the word study. I thought I was studying, but I was studying to have an outline. I was studying to put a bunch of scriptures together and occupy 30, 45 minutes of time, hoping that that would teach them the Bible. And my poor Sunday school students had been getting piecemeal teaching. I was starving them to death in some ways. I was giving them chips and Pepsi rather than strong meat. So in here, we try to give strong meat. We give the milk. We give the strong meat, just like the Bible says to do it. And it was about that time that I began teaching the Bible systematically. Verse by verse. And I remember having a conversation with Brother Fulton on the phone. We used to, before I came here, we talked on the phone for over an hour when we would talk. And we were talking about the scriptures, the scriptures, the scriptures. And I learned so much from doing that. Now I get to see him twice a week. It's wonderful. But that used to be the, the extent of our interaction was over the phone. And so we got to talking about the, the rapture and the coming, second coming of Christ. And I made a, a statement, and he said, well, uh, you know, I have a, have a different view on that, and here's what it is. And I said, oh, okay. He said, I'll tell you what, just go find this phrase right here, the day of the Lord. That's all he told me. He said, just go find that. He said, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Well, you know what I did? I made a beeline to my Bible and I found every place in the Bible that said the day of the Lord. And that's what changed my opinion. I didn't say, well, I'm gonna, I want to believe like Brother Richard does. No, I wanted to believe what the Bible taught. And I had a misunderstanding of it. Why? Because I listened to what a bunch of men said about it. That they learned from a bunch of men that they learned from a bunch of men. Instead of just looking at what God's Word said. So I began teaching the Bible systematically. And then I moved to another church where the expositional teaching of the Bible was encouraged a little bit more. In my Sunday school class, there was hungry for truth. And God blessed tremendously there, and I appreciated it. And he's done that here as well. I feel like people who come to Sunday school, they're hungry for truth. They want to see what God's Word says and try to understand it just a little bit better than they did when they got here. And I'm thankful that God was patient with me and that he taught me by his spirit that his word is sufficient as the primary weapon against the devil and that this weapon will protect his people. I don't need to go look at what other men say all the time. From time to time, I'll look at a commentary if I just get stumped on something. But normally, looking at the content, the context, the companion scriptures, and the concordance, those four right there, That'll get you through most of the problems 
that you come across in the Bible, and those problems are with your own understanding. So it's true that a soldier needs to be well-armed and trained with his weapons to protect the king, and it's also true that the pastor needs to be armed with the Bible and trained in its use to protect the church. And it's also true, furthermore, that fathers of our homes need to be well-armed with the Bible and trained in its use. And you don't have to be a pastor to be a father. In fact, most fathers aren't pastors. And some pastors aren't fathers. But most fathers are not pastors. And you don't have to be one to effectively use the truth of God's word to protect your household, your family. Psalm 78, verse 1, David wrote, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. And then skipping down to verses 5 and 6 in that same psalm, speaking of the Lord, For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children. What was God's perfect will concerning his word? That the fathers teach it to their children, so that when those children have children, they will teach it to theirs. So you fathers have to first receive what God's given you in his word. And then you've got to pass that on to your children so they will pass it on to their children. This was not a command God gave just so his people would be literate. Well, now we're going to read the prophets, what the prophets say in the law every night so I can teach you kids how to read. Hey, that's a great way to teach them how to read, by the way, is to teach them the Bible. People who say the the King James is too difficult to understand. It's about a 7th grade reading level, the old days 7th grade reading level. Now it's about, I guess you've got to have a master's degree. But back when reading was emphasized, it was, uh, I, I read some sort of scholarly study on how difficult is the King James translation. It's not that difficult. Some things in there are words we don't use anymore, so what do we do up here? We explain the sense of them, and we move on. But he gave this command to the fathers to protect the children. That's why. To protect the children. You know, I've always tried to keep myself in shape and skilled in self-defense and well-armed and all of those things that men often do. I check the doors at night to make sure the house is secure. I do all of those things because I want to be a good protector of my family. But I would be a sorry protector if I did not have as my primary defender the Word of God. Teaching it to my children that they might teach it to theirs. Mine are all grown now. So it's on them, isn't it? And I have two that have children. And my oldest, I've got a 10-year-old granddaughter and a 6-year-old granddaughter. So my oldest daughter and her husband are teaching their children the scriptures. They take them to church, they read the Bible, and I love it when one of my grandchildren tells me something they learned about the Bible. And then one day, 
I hope they'll teach their children. And I may not be around to see that. But that's the whole point of it. And perhaps you thought, boy, Brother Andy, you've spent a lot of time talking about protection the last two Sundays. And we have. You can't speak about it enough, in fact. In fact, as long as sin reigns in the world and the devil, the roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour, then we have to preach about the protection God's word gives us. Our worldly finances are going to fail us, aren't they? Our militaries, our personal defenses, but we know God's word is never going to fail. And we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or the next year or if there is going to be a tomorrow. Our political climate right now is tense. It's rife with corruption and deception. We've gradually handed our freedoms away both to our enemies without, but also to our own government within. People are scared. They're uncertain about what their future holds. And what they want is assurance and protection for themselves and their families. But many of them have placed their hope of protection on their financial well-being. They look at the economy and say, well, my stocks aren't doing so well here, but I've got gold. And I've got this over here in my bank, and I've got a savings bond and, and, and so forth, and I've got my house paid for. Hey, those are all good things. That's all good. So some of them will say, I've got plenty of money to weather the storm of riots and lawlessness. Well, you know what? Your money won't be any good in those days. That gold bar or that $10 bill will not protect you against somebody invading your home. You've seen how quickly the dollar can lose its value just in the last year. Others will say, well, I've, I've got an underground compound in the woods far away from civilization. It's camouflaged and it has years worth of supplies and ammunition and all of that in it. Well, the enemy has infrared cameras and bunker-busting bombs. <laughs> if the enemy wants to, he will find you and he will destroy your underground compound. Some say, well, I have food and water stored up. In case the stores run out of food, I'll be fine. For how long? You see the point here? It's wise to prepare financially. The Bible tells us to. It's wise to have a safe shelter and have plenty of food and water, but all of those things are perishable. They're carnal, and none of them are eternal. So if you had to pick one shield to quench the fiery darts of the devil, it better be the Bible. Because that's the only sure protection you have. Now look at verse 11. So we've got a guard, and they're well armed, and they've been trained. Verse 11, and the guard stood, every man with his weapons in his hand, round about the king, from the right corner of the temple to the left corner of the temple, along by the altar and the temple. Notice in this verse the completeness 
of this formation of, of guards. It said the guard stood. And that word stood doesn't mean just to stand up like when we sing hymns, we stand up and sometimes, and then we sit back down. It doesn't mean to just stand up and walk to the refrigerator. It's not that sort of thing. It does require you to stand up, but not casually. It means to stand firm. In fact, in the Old Testament, the word for stand in this verse, where it said, and the guard stood, that word is also translated as the words continue, remain, withstand, and endure. And there are some other words like that. So what these words tell us is that this guard which is the collective term for the group of defenders. They call it a guard. It's not just one person. This guard was standing in such a way so as to withstand anything and anyone who came against them, who tried to harm the king. To stand like this requires a commitment to not stop standing. When we talk about taking a stand on some issue that's important to us, what we're saying is we will not back down. We will figuratively stand and not sit. We're not going to sit on the sidelines. You've heard that phrase used. Example, as a father, I take a stand against drinking alcoholic beverages. That means... I'm not going to drink them. How can I take a stand against it if I'm drinking them? It means I won't drink them no matter how my friends or family or whoever it is tried to tempt me. It means I will not allow anyone to bring them into my home. It means I will teach my children not to drink them. So to stand on this issue means that I have to be able to endure to weather the criticism, even the ridicule that I receive from others. When they say, oh, come on, have a drink, it won't hurt you. If I give give in to make them happy, then I'm not standing as this guard stood to protect the king. I was recently asked if I was coming to a yearly Christmas party, not by anybody in the church, this was back home in the community, and I said, no. And the person said, well, why not? And I said, I don't drink alcohol, and I don't do parties. And I'm sure he thought I was a square, but that's okay. What if the soldiers who stood around the king were mocked and ridiculed by others, by Israelites, maybe even by their own parents? Jesus said, His foes shall be they of his own household. What if other Israelites called them names and even threatened these men who stood guard? When those soldiers decided to stand, as our text tells us, the guards stood, they decided to withstand, to endure mockery and ridicule and taunting and threats, all of that. Learn this well. A Christian must stand, not to be saved, 
but because he is saved and he is a target for the prince of this world, the devil. Before he described the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, the apostle Paul wrote, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. He uses the word stand and withstand in the same sentence. To stand in the evil day is to withstand in the evil day. And the key to standing like this is to take on the armor of God just as the defenders of Joash took on the armor of David, the shields and the swords he left there in the temple. And chapter 6 of Ephesians tells you what the armor of God is, the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith and your loins girt about with the truth and your feet shed with the, shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. See, that's your armor. And that's what you have to have to stand like this guard Stood, And not only was it important that the guard stood, it was important that everyone in the guard stood. Around the king, there could not be one defender who ran away from his duty, who decided to take a break when it wasn't his time to take a break, who neglected to perform his duty, even though he may have been standing there with his shield and sword and all the training that he received. If he said, well, I'm not going to do anything. I, I don't want to get involved. I'll just stand here. Each defender had to stand. Not just some of them. Not even most of them. Every one of them. For sure protection of the king. Now, the spiritual health of a church is very similar to this. It's only as good as those who will stand as this guard did. Individually, me, you, 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 you. Individually, we stand or withstand in the evil day. But corporately, as a group, as a body, each of us have to withstand in the evil day. And we're in one right now, aren't we? We're in an evil day. Imagine what would happen if our pastor stood, if the teachers of our children stood, and most of the members stood, or even all of them, and I decided to shrink. I decided to sit down, spiritually speaking. Or imagine if the, the pastor and most of the members stood on God's word, but there were a couple who did not. And those two began sowing discord among the brethren, talking trash about the leadership and trying to draw people to their side. You know, we've had that over the years. I'm thankful we don't have that now. But we've dealt with that over the 10 years I've been here. And it's sad. It's stressful. It, it's divisive. It creates anxiety in people and it distracts them from learning the Bible and encouraging one another and loving one another like we're supposed to do. But thankfully... The ones who stood as Joash's guard remained. And 
the ones who didn't stand like Joash's guard did left us. And the reason they left us is because we continued to stand. If we just said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, old brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so or that family there, they, uh, man, they sure do give a lot of money to the church. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have brand new this or that. Then we wouldn't be standing, would we, if we did that? Or, well, we don't want to run them off. Uh, we'll just try to include in our sermon something outside the Bible that might, maybe a, a cute little story or a joke or something, just to keep them laughing. No, that's not standing. The reason they left is they saw that the people in the pastor in this church were going to stand on what we've stood on. And that's by God's grace. That's not by our own strength and might that we do that. It's by God's grace. And it wasn't important enough for them to also stand and so they left. And to you who have stood with God's word, thank you. And I pray that you'll continue to stand because the devil would love to get you to sit down on the job. We've read that the guards stood, and we've read that they all stood. Now let's look at verse 12. And he, now that's Jehoiada, the, the priest, and he brought forth the king's son and put the crown upon him and gave him the testimony. And they made him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands and said, God save the king. They brought forth the king's son. Now that was Joash because his father was a king and his father was a king. The word crown here, this is wonderful. It says, and put the crown upon him. Did you know that in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word that's translated as the word crown is also translated as the word separation and the word consecration. Same word. The crown is to separate the king from the people. The crown is to consecrate the king unto the Lord. Not just to put him in charge of a group of people so we can have a boss in a palace. What a lesson here. Speaking of the high priest, in Leviticus chapter 21, Leviticus 21 verse 12, Moses wrote this about the high priest. Listen for the word crown in here. It says, neither shall he go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God, for the crown of the anointing oil of his God is upon him. I am the Lord. Not only was the high priest not to leave the sanctuary, but he was also not to profane the sanctuary while he was in it. And the reason was that the crown the separation, the consecration of God's anointing oil was upon him. The high priest was separated from among the people. He was separated from among the other Levites and consecrated to the Lord by this anointing oil upon him. And the king, Joash, and every king was also separated from the people and consecrated unto the Lord. Did you know the only form of government that's ever worked when it is properly instituted is a theocracy? Now, that might throw you off. You might think, oh, no, a theocracy? There's no separation of church and state? Listen, when God is in charge all the way up and down the ladder, that is the perfect form of government. 
And there is absolutely no way that this country or any other country in this sin-cursed world is going to get back to it on their own. It's not going to happen. Adam and Eve lived under a theocracy in the garden. Did you know that? A theocracy means God ruled. God ruled. And they had perfect fellowship in that theocracy. They had perfect fellowship with each other and with God. Until they threw off that government for another form of government called a democracy. The husband and the wife voted two to nothing against obeying God's word. And that sin resulted in their ejection from the garden, that perfect garden where they had perfect fellowship with God, and their subjection to the governments of this world, democracy, autocracy, or dictatorship, oligarchy, where just a few have all the power in their hands, representative republics, which we supposedly have now, that was at least the intent of our founding fathers, and many other names that are given to the governments of men. And do you know the problem with all of them? They're all run by men. They're all run by men and women, but not God, because man will not subject himself to God. People cry out for separation of church and state. Theocracies such as Islam are corrupt as well. They don't submit themselves to the Lord, but to another man named Muhammad who also threw off God's government. Listen, when Jesus comes to gather his people, he will restore a theocracy, the only form of government that guarantees lasting peace for its subjects. Revelation 21, verse 3, and then we'll close here. It says in Revelation 21, 3, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. God will restore the theocracy he once instituted in Eden, but there will be no sin to tempt its subjects out from under it. And with that, we'll close. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the people who are faithful to want to study it and learn it. And Lord, thank you for giving me what to say about it. And I pray, Lord God, that you would just cause this truth to be embedded within our own inner men that when we leave this place, we'll meditate upon it. Father, we won't forget it as some uh, bedtime story, but we'll esteem it as our necessary meat. In Jesus' name, 